Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, today our guest is James Bradbury. James Bradbury is a research scientist at Salesforce Research. His research mainly focuses on making things fast and easy, both in model architectures and in software. He developed quasi-recurrent neural networks and non-autoregressive seek-to-seek models, both of which remove sequential dependencies in model architectures to increase parallelism and reduce training and inference time. Today, we're going to be talking about some of his recent work on a new method for automatically creating mini-batches in code. James, welcome to the program. Hi, great to be here. So the title of this paper is Matchbox, Dispatch-Driven Auto-Batching for Imperative Deep Learning. Can you tell us about the setting of this paper? Like, What is auto-batching? So this is a systems paper where I'm describing a toolkit that I put together to make deep learning code easier, more convenient to write, in particular in the setting of uh, dynamic or imperative or defined by run deep learning frameworks like PyTorch. The motivation is that the reason why people want to use these, uh, these dynamic frameworks is because they want to write deep learning models in a way that looks a lot more and feels a lot more like code. That it's, it's sort of a lot of cognitive overhead and unnecessary complexity to write models in the, the graph-based approach of something like Theano or TensorFlow where the code you write doesn't actually run on the data in the machine learning model. It runs once at the beginning and creates a graph structure, and that graph structure later runs the machine learning model. So people have appreciated the simplicity and straightforwardness and ease of debugging of tools like PyTorch that let you just write the code that will actually run. But there's still some gaps between something like PyTorch and what we'd like to be able to do. And I think one of the biggest ones is batching. So in, uh, in the ideal case, you'd write code that applies to a single training example. And it might use control flow, like for loops and if statements. And it might do, do things that are different depending on some of the properties or content of that training example. So if it's a natural language processing problem, that training example might have a different number of words in it. If it's something like machine translation, the training example might have a different number of words in the source and also a different number of words in the target. And the problem is that frameworks like PyTorch, even though they let you write code like if statements and for loops, that code needs to run on an entire batch of training examples. So in order to achieve the uh, performance benefits of, of like parallel hardware like GPUs, you really need to run on an entire mini-batch at once. And as soon as you need to do that, you can't actually write the most natural example-level code anymore because you have to write code that applies to a mini-batch. And so that process of turning a model which is inherently example level into code that works at the batch level often involves some trade-offs in sort of the abstractions that you have to write, things you have to keep track of, like padding or masking or um, other kinds of metadata that you have to follow through the network. And the goal of Matchbox is to just do all of that for you, keep track of the metadata attached to a batch, automatically perform 
masking so that you can write code that applies at the example level and then run it on many batches. So what exactly is the issue here with padding and masking? Like why, why is this even a problem? And in what circumstances is it a problem? Why do we have to think about this at all? Well, the thing is that when you, um, when you write a batch deep learning model, let's pick a particular example. Let's say you're doing sequence classification. So you have a data set that consists of a bunch of sentences of various lengths. And your goal is to predict the sentiment or other kind of class of each of the sentences. And you're going to use a recurrent neural network. If you don't worry about padding and masking, then you're going to take a bunch of sentences of different lengths and you're going to put them into a mini batch together. Well, first of all, you can't do that without padding the shorter ones out to the length of the longer ones. But okay, you, you pad them out. Then you run that recurrent neural network a lot of the um, a lot of the computations in that RNN are going to use the padding, like that's going to be part of the computation, and the result is that you're actually going to the result's not going to be accurate. Um, you're going to be training on some padding. You're going to hope that your model learns to ignore it. Maybe in practice, that happens in the simplest cases, and it doesn't happen at all when the situation is any more complicated than that. Have you actually run experiments with that? Can you quantify at all, even anecdotally, how much this hurts you in complicated cases? Yeah, so I've done a lot of um, work in neural machine translation, and most recently using Google's transformer architecture. Attention is all you need, self-attention. And when you don't restrict that self-attention layer from attending to padding tokens, the performance actually drops significantly. Interesting. Um, just anecdotally, yeah. Okay. And so this, that's something that if you're a researcher, you don't want to leave that, even if you don't know, you don't want to leave that on the table. And so usually you go ahead and you write up that masking code, even if you don't want to. Yeah, and I guess back when I was in school, uh, before the days of, of deep learning for NLP, we used to talk a lot about probabilistic models. And I had lots of uh, experiment, or lots of programming assignments in my NLP classes that made sure that my models were proper probability distributions, because that was actually important if you wanted this to behave like you expect. We don't talk about this very much anymore. But when we talk about things like attention, we're really constructing probability distributions over some piece of our input. And if you're constructing that probability distribution over padding tokens, that means your distribution is deficient. Like this isn't a proper probability distribution anymore. So you, your model might still work, maybe, but it's not doing what you what you claim it's doing. Yeah, and and we've as a community we've often like glossed over those things. I mean, yeah. I, I I worked with like sequence to sequence translation models for several months without caring about whether I'm attending to padding or not. So what are the ways that people handle this these days? Like how. How do you deal with masking in current machine learning code? I feel like it's it's kind of analogous to the state of um, of gradients in machine learning code before toolkits like Theano. That right now everyone does it themselves, and people do it in different ways. People do it again and again for every project they write, and I I feel like it's the kind of thing that's best done once, and it's best done 
behind the scenes, just like we wouldn't want to hand write um, gradients anymore. I don't think we should we should need to hand write masking code. And the the reason that I think that is that it's the hardest part to be sure that you've got it right. So a lot of like parts of coding in ML, like, well, it just won't run. The types will miss, like, won't match. Um, but one of the most common kinds of implementation bugs that you're not going to notice because it's not going to give you a runtime or compile time error, but it's just going to silently misbehave is when you've made a mistake in writing this, like, padding and masking. So then you can write it yourself. I know Keras has some options for doing this. Dynet has some options. What about uh, TensorFlow? Does plain TensorFlow have any options for doing kind of masking and padding? Like, do you have some sense of like patterns that people currently do other than just writing your own handwritten code? Yeah. So I'm I'm most familiar with PyTorch, where there really isn't um, built-in support for these things, except in the case of optimized RNNs. There's like a a specific module that lets you apply optimized RNNs with built-in padding. But in other frameworks, there's been more attention paid. So yeah, Keras builds in basically the ability to use padding to a lot of their core layers. I haven't used it in a while. I'm not super familiar with the way that works. But I know that TensorFlow, like the underlying TensorFlow part, doesn't. Um, that there's there's no way. So even though TensorFlow has things like um, dynamic while loops, you can't create a dynamic while loop that has a different number of iterations for each example in the batch, which is really the goal of um, of using padding and masking in RNN. That all of the guidelines and tutorials for TensorFlow on RNN say, okay, create a dynamic while loop whose length is the maximum length of the batch, and then uh, manually like add these incantations to make the masking and padding work. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the first two proposals to really automate masking and padding and, and auto-batching in the general case, both came out last year. First, some folks on the TensorFlow team came out with something called TensorFlow Fold. Um, so that was an ICLR paper last year. The idea there was instead of writing your models in TensorFlow or Keras, or another existing TensorFlow wrapper, you wrote your models in this novel domain-specific functional programming language called Fold that was embedded in Python. And if you specified your models in Fold, and that's that's a language composed of primitives like like sort of the Haskell-ish Fold-L or Map or Reduce, if you wrote your model composed of those primitives, then it would automatically batch over arbitrary data structures. So you could write a model um, that performed like folds over tree structures and graph structures um, and variable length structures of, of all sorts of kinds. Um, basically, the restrict the one restriction being that all control flow in your model has to ultimately come down to the data structure, the structural shape of the input. So that so that's one drawback of TensorFlow Fold. The other is just that it's not maintained anymore. So it it was released like with this ICLR paper 
and with like TensorFlow 1.1, 1.2 or something. And it, it hasn't it hasn't been updated. It hasn't been maintained. I don't I think the last commit was in November. And I'm I'm not I'm honestly not entirely sure why. So this is like the 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 creation of different ways to uh, use TensorFlow, um, in particular, like more dynamic and flexible ways like TensorFlow Eager and TensorFlow Fold. It's driven by the fact that researchers at Google want to um, have more flexibility in, in writing models. So I guess it, it was surprising to me that Fold in particular didn't seem to have significant amount of uptake, at least visibly outside of Google. So that, that's Fold. And basically saw that the, the auto-batching algorithm itself was pretty cool, but that you could apply it without creating a new domain-specific language. So Dynet is a fully dynamic, imperative deep learning framework, really one of the first, that lets you write arbitrary Python or C++ code with control flow. And it's always had this approach that like, if you can't easily batch something, just don't. So a lot of people write Dynet code that's expected to run on CPU rather than GPU and expected to run completely without batches. This is almost the canonical way to use Dynet. And so the, the Dynet folks built something where you could take a mini batch of data and then write a literal for loop over that mini batch. Say, okay, run example one, then run example two, then run example three. Um, and so the code that you write is code that works on a single example. But Dynet has lazy semantics. So when you say run example one, it just queues up the set of operations that you need to do to run example one. And then same for all the other examples. And then once all of the once you've queued up the, the computation graphs for examples one through n, you can call a a method to perform the auto-batching. And that means it looks at this massive computation graph and it finds sub-expressions that can be batched together. So if there are two matrix multiplies of the same size, you can stack those matrices. Or if there are um, multiple different uh, sigmoids, you can just concatenate those matrices before performing the sigmoid. And this approach, I mean, it's the, it's the first time that, that you've gotten to a point where you can write imperative code with control flow and have that automatically be batched. But the, the, the downside is basically first that it requires this lazy semantics. So that control flow cannot depend on actual values that the network produces because it has to be run lazily. So you, you have to be able to run the entire graph for a particular example in the batch before you go to the next example. And that means that the graph structure, uh, like which operations are performed, can't depend on the, the actual numerical values you get in the, in the process. Um, and that rules out an important class of, um, of reinforcement learning models. Basically, when models where your, uh, your model is actually generating a probability distribution over actions, and then you're taking one of those actions. And that the choice of taking an action um, determines like the structure of your network for the next few steps. And that, that means things like um, architectures that build 
like implicit tree structures over over language data, um, which is a sort of a hot topic these days. And then the other drawback is that that process of looking at all of the graph structures that the the various examples have built, and then finding the commonalities and merging them together, it has pretty bad computational complexity because you you it's it doesn't it doesn't take advantage of the fact that like a priori the same code running on separate examples like the same line of code is likely to generate structures that can be batched together it instead just looks at the whole graph as a single data structure and so on fast modern hardware like a an nvidia v100 gpu or something um, it actually takes significantly longer to perform that auto batching than it does to run the resulting graph on the GPU. And so, if 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 like right now the auto batching and the the building of the graphs takes sixty or seventy percent of the wall clock time, then a GPU that's ten times faster, well, that's a that's ten times faster, but only for the thirty percent. So the whole thing won't get more than fifty percent faster. Right. So what's your approach to solving this problem? Trying to turn auto-batching into a more general or more difficult compiler problem, I wanted to automate the sort of well-established process of manual batching. Basically, I looked at what people usually do when they're adding masking and padding to deep learning models for NLP. And then I wanted to make that implicit and, and automated. So in particular, you usually keep track of a mask tensor for each set of for each data tensor or set of activations in the model. And that mask tensor is one when when the activation represents valid, meaningful data, and it's zero when it represents something that's masked out. And then I take those mask tensors and I propagate them through the network alongside their data tensors. And so basically I've just written overloads for the different neural network operations in PyTorch that mean that those operations which would ordinarily apply to a PyTorch variable will also apply to a Matchbox batch and will do the right thing to the data tensor and then the right thing to the mask tensor. So that's the basic idea. Um, and then there's, so, that, so overloads work for everything that's a function. And then there's also control flow. Uh, and the problem with control flow is that let's say you have a for loop, different examples in the batch will might run that for loop for different numbers of iterations, and so you have to do sort of special rewriting of the for loop to make sure that in iterations where a particular example doesn't get touched because it doesn't have a value for that index, that that part of the batch stays the same and doesn't get affected. So basically, it sounds like your the PyTorch has operations like index select and BMM yeah. and add and multiply and all of these things. And you're just yeah. you're overloading these operators or implementing this interface for a new object. And then instead of passing in a variable, I pass in a batch object. Yeah. And because all of these operators, like including like the array, access array mm-hmm. operator, will just be aware of the mask. And uh, if you're trying to access something that it doesn't actually exist, that get operation will just be a no-op. It won't, it won't do anything, for yeah. example, right? Well, it'll, it'll return 
so so if you do a if you do a like get index or a slice on a down like a dynamic dimension, a dimension that varies in length among mini batches, the result is that you'll get a mini batch that is valid in certain examples and completely invalid in others. So it'll be completely masked out for certain whole examples in the batch. Interesting. So th- this sounds a whole lot like the way that Keras handles masking. The You said you weren't too familiar with it. I, I'm quite familiar with it. I spent yeah. a long, a, too much of my life trying to figure out how to get this to work right for NLP. Uh, and it turns out it's really complicated to, to get Keras to do complex NLP architectures with this masking stuff. But the way that it works is Keras has a layer abstraction similar to a module in PyTorch. And every layer can take a mask and modify the mask and propagate it. And the thing I struggled with was that I really only needed the mask in a few specific places. But because I needed it towards the end of my network, every intermediate operation had to know about the mask, know what computation to do, and propagate it correctly. And because I was implementing lots of my own layers, I had to do lots of my own masking code to figure out how the mask should should propagate correctly. Um, It sounds like you have a really similar approach. Do you want to say anything there? Yeah, I think that's right. Probably the biggest difference is just that now, given the state of something like PyTorch and also something like Keras, you're not going to have to write as many of your own layers as you used to. So I think it's it's something that's that maybe it's time has come in the sense that um, these days, the vast majority of deep learning researchers can make do with the, the sort of built-in set of functions that PyTorch offers. And it's increasingly rare unless you're, um, unless you're working at a very low level to write your own autograd function. And if you, if you do that, then, uh, yes, you now, you now will have to write, you just say what happens to the mask. But if nothing happens to the mask, that's pretty easy to do. And that, that's, that's fairly common. So if something complicated happens to the mask, well, that, like, that's, that's a real thing that happens in the network. I just, I basically, I want people to think of um, the mask as a, a sort of critical part of the data type, the batch that's flowing through their network. If you don't pay attention to it, like don't make use of it in the computation, then you're actually losing information. It's a, as if you like your input was a complex number and you just threw away the imaginary part. Yeah, I think you were a little bit unfair to yourself in your comparison with Keras because the Keras layer is actually a higher level abstraction than what you're dealing with. And so you're, you're dealing at like the tensor operation level, not at yeah. the layer level. And so I, I think lots of people will still write their own PyTorch modules or, yes, definitely. or Keras layers. They just probably won't be writing their own tensor functions, tensor operations. That's a whole lot more rare. And so because you're, you're dealing with masking at that level, maybe you do have something that most people won't really have to worry about very much. And so that's nice. I, I do still wonder, though, it, there are only a few operations where you actually need the mask. And that's like computing and attention. When you, when you have a normalization, like a softmax yeah. over a set, you need to have a mask in order to get a proper probability distribution. Or when you're doing a recurrent computation and you have varying sequence lengths, you really need a mask there. I can't think of very many, very many other places where you actually need it. And so I wonder if, like, if, even like, are you wasting computation by doing the mask computations in order to propagate the mask to places you don't need it? So I don't, I don't know. I think this, this seems like it's still an open question to me. 
Yeah, and we have like a couple sort of basic benchmarks in the paper that show that it does add some overhead over not dealing with the masks at all. But that, that overhead is not especially different from what people were doing before with like manually dealing with the masks. So when you're just propagating a mask and you're not running any computations on it, the only overhead you're adding is the overhead of a couple lines of Python. If you're doing computations with the mask, then those computations are things which you basically can't avoid if your goal is to have a, a valid mask at this point in the, in the, in the network. Like you need to know what the mask should look like at this point in the network. And that's the result of transformations that have happened to the mask before. So you, you could, if you're like, if you're writing it manually, maybe you know more about the transformations and can combine them together and sort of do like an optimization pass yourself to minimize the number of operations. But that actually gets to the long-term goal for this project. And I guess long-term in the sense of next couple months, which is that PyTorch is working very, like the PyTorch core team is working very hard on something that will allow you to compile the modules and the, the code you've written. And so the goal there is that you can export it to a static graph framework like TensorFlow or Cafe2 or MXNet using an intermediate representation called Onyx, Open Neural Network Exchange. And this is something that like, is a collaboration between a lot of companies, between a lot of framework developers. And on the PyTorch side, involves a lot of very interesting compiler work because PyTorch is this dynamic framework in Python. And getting a static graph out of it is like sounds really hard. Mm-hmm. And so one, basically the, the, the reason why getting a static graph out of a dynamic framework like PyTorch is hard is that the, the most straightforward approach, which is what is already working in PyTorch today, is tracing. So if you have a PyTorch network, you can ask PyTorch to trace it into a static graph representation. Um, and that means to, you start with a mini batch and you run it through the network and all of the operations that it calls, it just records those and then it puts them in a graph and you can call them again later. And this covers everything except Python control flow because the tracer doesn't see the if statement. It just sees which side of the if statement was selected. Right. And so if you can get rid of Python control flow, then you're at a situation where the trace exactly represents the semantics of the PyTorch network. And so the core team is working on basically ways to compile basic Python control flow into higher order functions. So to take a for loop and compile that into like something that looks more like a Theano scan or a TensorFlow while op. I think Matchbox is pretty complementary to that because we also do some basic like static analysis, control flow analysis on, on loops and conditionals. And we can benefit from the, the sort of more comprehensive static analysis that PyTorch is adding. And then as soon as we're able to get rid of every last example of Python control flow by lifting it into a higher order function, then we too can benefit from this uh, Onyx export and, and just-in-time compilation because suddenly the Python code that 
that the user writes and that we write in the Matchbox framework, that will only be run once. And it will be building the trace that the compiler later uses to create an optimized implementation. So I'm not too familiar with the PyTorch team's efforts here. Does When, when you say uh, removing the control flow, does that mean I literally don't write ifs anymore and instead I use a different function? No, that means you write the if, but the uh, backend actually lifts it into, into a different representation. What they've written now is like, it's still in progress, but what, what, what you can find on, on the PyTorch repository is an effort to basically convert Python source code into higher order functions and a graph-like representation. So does that mean I use a different interpreter than the Python interpreter? Like, I'm, I'm just confused as to how this even works. Yeah, so it, it means that you have... Some parts of your network are not control flow, right? They're just calling Python functions. Other parts of the network do involve control flow. So every time it sees something like an if for a while, it can analyze the contents of that statement or that block. So let's say it's a for loop, it can discover... And the, the, the key thing to discover is the same thing that Matchbox needs to look for, which is loop-carried dependencies. So it, it needs to discover every variable that is both read from and written to during the course of the loop, everything that's updated each run through the loop. And once you identify those, you can pull them out, and then you can take the body of the loop and write it as a function, and then rewrite the overall loop into a call to a higher order function that takes that function as an argument, updates the loop carry dependencies at each step. So rewriting control flow as a higher order function is also called lambda lifting. And that's the only thing that needs to happen. So once that happens, you can use the ordinary Python interpreter. Interesting. That's cool. This is a good example of, of something that is a huge trend this year and like pretty exciting to me, which is the, the sort of machine learning and programming languages communities are starting to, to talk to each other more. So the, this, this project at, on, on the PyTorch core team, this is the result of some fantastic compiler engineers joining Facebook and working on what many people thought was impossible, which is like statically analyzing Python code and converting into a graph representation. These are like people who worked on the Haskell compiler and, and people who, who wrote a uh, just-in-time compiler for like Lua or other languages. And something similar is happening at Google, where they just recently hired one of the best-known compiler engineers in the world, Chris Latner. Yeah. It- it's an exciting time. There's a lot of nice stuff being built right now. Like again, going back to my school days, I remember writing gradient code and machine learning used to feel so hard. And now it's just like I just declaratively write all of my operations and optimization just happens for free. It's magic. It's pretty cool. ML researchers are never satisfied. <laughs> Want it to be easier and faster. And and it, it's I mean it's it's a this is there's a real motivation for this, which is that the hardware just keeps getting faster. And software is is not keeping up. Like, I mean, with with a with a Volta GPU, it's it doesn't make any sense anymore to have a Python interpreter controlling it. The Python interpreters cannot keep up with the, the GPU hardware anymore. Well, great. This was a really interesting conversation. Any last thoughts before we conclude? Thanks so much. This is really enjoyable. Yeah, it was nice talking to you.